coming. I want to reiterate what Lee uh, mentioned earlier. This thing that's kicking off in two weeks, the service station, we believe that's going to be a great addition to our uh, children's ministry and older preschool ministry. What Lee was talking about will happen uh, every Sunday except the final Sunday of the month. We'll continue our current uh, cycle where on the final Sunday of the month we keep our children in worship with us through the whole service. But for the first three Sundays of each month, uh, what we're going to begin to do is, is the kids who are in the four-year-old class all the way up through sixth grade, during the first 25 minutes of the service, while we're in the, the song portion of the service, they're going to be in an opening time that will involve music and, and uh, drama and uh, uh, puppets and things that are going to really engage them that we think is going to be great set up for their teaching time. And so that will be a real shot in the arm for that area of ministry. If you're interested in helping to serve in that area, then uh, see Lee and Cindy. They would welcome your involvement there. Uh, that song, before we dive into the message, let me just say, boy, that song that we just closed with, that is a profound and powerful song, isn't it? Um, I, I'll just say this, it has nothing to do with what I'm preaching on today, but if you are wrestling with a, an issue that you believe may involve a spiritual stronghold where you're having to deal with some demonic stuff that needs to be broken off, hey, if, if you want something that's going to be just a real practical aid in seeing that broken off, download that song. And just let it play and sing it through the day. The enemy absolutely hates and is tormented by sound doctrine that honors the lordship of Jesus. And it's something that just declares sound doctrine and a, and a repeated declaration of Jesus as your personal Lord. There's not much that will shake the enemy loose faster than that. So uh, no extra charge for that thought. But that's worth doing. Good, good song. Great worship set today and last night. If you missed last night, great time of of praise and worship. Thanks to our, our worship team for leading us there. Well, today uh, we are diving into a series that we're just a couple of weeks in. It's called Be All That You Can Be. And uh, the last couple of weeks we started out by talking about believe, that you've got to get your thinking straight and understand something about who God is and, and uh, just a, a proper worldview. And then last week we talked about beginning, how uh, in order for your life to be what it's supposed to be, you've got to begin a relationship with Christ. Nobody's just born into that. You've got to be born again. There has to be a starting point to move forward in a relationship with Christ. And what we're going to talk about today is belonging. Every one of us are made with a tremendous need and capacity for connection with other people. And there's nothing that gives stronger evidence of the fact that God has wired us this way than the fact that, that we have this desperate need and requirement to be born into family and to participate in family. Now, you know, I don't know what your family is like. And in a room this size with all of us here and people watching online, a lot of different families represented. Some of them were great families and some of them were just as screwy as the day is long. You know, that's a fact. Uh, some of you have grown up and said, I'm just glad I survived my family. Well, regardless of how good or bad your family was, you had a desperate need for family connection. And that's never gone away. It's, it's changed some, but you still have a very strong need for family. One of the things that has driven home how important this is for us that we've witnessed over our lifetimes uh, took place as a result of the fall of the Iron Curtain in Europe and Asia. If you'll remember, uh, through the 90s, after the door was kind of opened for us to begin to go into all of these countries that before had been pretty much inaccessible for us, one of the things, if you'll remember specifically in the 90s, is that suddenly uh, the door was opened for us to see what a tremendous need there was where there were just all of these orphanages all over the place. I remember like specifically uh, Romania was one of the places where we just discovered that there were so many thousands upon thousands of little boys and girls who were just stuck in these orphanages that really were not great environments for child care. They, they were given food and they were given beds and they were given shelter from the elements, but that was about it. There was almost no personal human interaction. And if you recall, in the 90s, there was this, and it was a positive thing, but there was this tremendous movement of Americans, and many of them American Christians, who just, out of a sense of compassion and wanting to do something to help these thousands of kids, went in, and you know it was kind of like in some of these countries, they were just going, hey, please take them. They're just an expense and a drain on us, so if you'll take them, we'd be glad for you to have them. And so there were all of these kids from Eastern Europe that suddenly were being grabbed up and adopted in the U.S., mostly by families that were you know, well-meaning and going to provide love and nurture for them. And it just seemed like a win-win all around. Do you remember that? Some of you were probably like me and knew people who adopted kids from these places. 
But a very interesting and disturbing thing unfolded over the next five to ten years after these families made all of these adoptions. Because there was just sort of this assumption that these poor, neglected children, if they could just be brought into loving, nurturing families, that everything would be fine and everybody would live happily ever after. And what we found was something very, very different. That a large percentage of these children who had come up in these environments where they, they got fed and they got sheltered and they had a bed to sleep in, but they didn't have a connection. They didn't have a sense of belonging to a family. After some years of living in that, even though they were brought into more loving, nurturing environments, they were so broken. They were so damaged by the thing that they missed by not having a chance to belong and to connect with a family that even though they came into typically American families where they were loved and cared for, boy, families just found that they had like ticking time bombs on their hands. All of these just scary, destructive behaviors that began to manifest over the next five or ten years. And suddenly American parents were going, what do we do? We don't know how to begin to deal with this. We've we've tried to just give them the very best and to really love and care for them. And what they found was terrible damage had been done. That even though their basic needs had been supplied, that the most fundamental need that a human being has, being deprived of that, had terribly fractured these children at the deepest part of who they were. And they were growing up to be very unhealthy damaged adolescents and young adults. I say all that just to point out, this thing is very real in us. Regardless of what kind of family you came from, you have a tremendous need for connection with other people. Now God, in His wisdom, has designed two organizations, two families, that are are specifically designed to nurture you, to give you what you need, and give you an opportunity. Because... An opportunity to express love and be connected in a giving relationship because God really did design you with this capacity that you have as great a need to give away as you have to receive. That's a really interesting thing to learn about yourself is to discover that that you have this great need not only to to be loved and accepted, but to love and to reach out. And the uh, lack of opportunity to do either one really is a crippling thing. Those two organizations we're, we're real familiar with. They are the family and the church. Now today, we talk about family a lot around here. Today we're going to talk about the church. The church has become a much uh, attacked and maligned thing in the U.S. today, hasn't it? I mean, people love to hate on the church. I just want to tell you plainly and clearly, I love the church. I love the church because Jesus loves the church. Jesus is crazy about the church. Jesus says the church is his bride. He is in love with the church. He says, you you want to see him? You want to see what Jesus looks like? He says, look at the church because this is my body in the world. This is how you get to see me. Look at the church. Now, I understand why people are turned off to church. I understand why people say, I I am really skeptical and afraid of organized religion. To which I always want to say, well, you'll love our church because we're not very organized. You know, we're religious looking. But no, I I, I get it. When people are like, "I, I I just don't believe in church. I want to stay away from church. I love God, but I don't love the church. I understand that. What we're normally saying when we say that is, I went to church and they were mean to me. I get it. Some of the meanest people on earth go to church, especially in the South. I'm telling you, you, most towns in the South, most little towns, you find the meanest, most controlling people in town, and they go to one of the biggest churches and try and control it. It's it's wicked. It's, It's crazy. But you know what? In spite of that, the church is the thing that Jesus is in love with, and the church has a role like nothing else in the world does. Without a doubt... There is no group in all of history, including today, and there will be no group or individual in the future that comes close to having the level of influence and impact in the world that the church of Jesus Christ has, without a doubt. And that's not just like some blind statement. If you look into it, there's nothing that impacts the world like the church does. Jesus had some striking things to say about the church, and I'm going to move this before I break my neck. Ephesians 5, Paul said that Christ loved the church and he gave up his life 
for her. Jesus talking in Matthew 16, he said, upon this rock, in context, he's saying, upon this rock of revelation, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I would just remind you of something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. To have a Christian worldview, to have our, our heads on straight, we have to understand that we live in, in an environment where what happens on earth is just a smaller part of a, this great conflict that's going on between God and the kingdom of those who are faithful to Him, the kingdom of light, versus the kingdom of darkness, which is under the rule of Lucifer, who was an archangel in heaven, who was cast out of heaven somewhere in the very distant past, and all of the angels that had followed, followed after him. And within this great conflict, which is beyond what we can easily grasp, is all that happens on earth, because when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he was cast down to the earth, and he has had tremendous control over the earth. Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world. The work of the church is a reclamation project. God is reclaiming the earth completely. And he will finish what he has started. And the church is his vehicle for doing that. That's a big deal. Jesus is saying, it is the church that the kingdom of darkness cannot stand against. And in fact, today and every day for the last 2,000 years, the kingdom of darkness has been yielding ground to the kingdom of light as the church marches forward. Now, sometimes we lose our sense of just what a profound thing that is that's happening because we live in, in the West and we live in... America, which has been a very Christian nation, we live in a world where the church has already marched from coast to coast and has had such influence for so many years and it sort of feels like old news. But I want to tell you, when you go into the parts of the world that the church hasn't taken over yet and you see kingdoms in conflict, you hear me talk about it frequently, but there's, there's no place that you see it more clearly than in the continent of Africa. Christian Southern Africa marching ever northward. Man, in the 20th century, and the start of the 21st century, this is where it is going on. It's not the only place, but it is a big place that it's going on. A continent that a little over 100 years ago was only 10% Christian. Now it's over 50% Christian, and in our lifetimes will become the most Christian continent on the earth. Christian Southern Africa marching northward. And man, many of these are densely populated countries and colliding with Muslim North Africa and the Muslim Middle East as they are very intentionally targeting and marching southward through Kenya and Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, all the way across from the, the eastern coast to the western coast countries like Niger and Nigeria. And, and you know, we hear the news stories where these things are colliding. You hear about like in Nigeria, Boko Haram and, and the clashes that are taking place there and man the church is what jesus is using the gates of hell the gates of islam cannot stand against what god is doing through the church oh i just can't wait for you to hear and see more of what god's doing and i am so juiced because we get to go back to africa this coming year the end of april we're going to nigeria and if god's put it on your heart to go see me because we are going back God's made the connection and has opened the door for a nine or ten day trip into Nigeria where it is going on. And I want you to know, I know it, for some of you who are interested and you start looking online and you start looking at Nigeria. Yes, there are definitely some dangerous places in Nigeria. By the way, Jesus didn't come into a safe world to save those who lived in safe places. Jesus came into a world that was under the rule of the kingdom of darkness and he came to change that. And we can't change that with an email. We've got to show up and put boots on the ground if we're going to take back these places that Satan has, has ruled. And so I am so jacked that God is letting us go back into a place where he is pouring out his spirit and power. And the church is doing incredible stuff. I've got to stop there because I'll get on a tear and we won't get done soon. But I'll share more later. You be praying about that. Be praying toward that. Maybe God wants you to be a part of, of that. But uh, as you think about God's plan for the church and the role of the church. There's a scripture I, I should have put in your outline that was an oops on my part. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me because this is a passage that is worth you having to chew on this week and meditate on. Ephesians chapter 3. It's one of the more intriguing texts in the New Testament to me. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 9. Paul says this. I was chosen to explain to everyone... This mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. 
And here's an interesting thought, that God had a mysterious secret plan that he had kept from everyone since the beginning of creation. Paul says, I get to explain this. And here's a part of the deal, that God's purpose in all of this, the unfolding of this mysterious secret plan, was to use the church to display His wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was His eternal plan, which He carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. What in the world is He talking about? I'll tell you exactly what He's talking about. Earth... Under the rule and tyranny of Lucifer and all of the countless demons who followed him. All of the horrible suffering that has come as a result. When you think of the unspeakable, unspeakable atrocities that you just wonder, how can one human being or one group of human beings do to another? I'll tell you part of the how. Part of that is the wicked human flesh, just the, our, our fleshly nature. But a big part of it is there is evil beyond us. There is unseen evil that is that's more cruel than we can imagine. And the world has lived under that horrible oppression. And Jesus was not content to leave it that way. God, since the before the very fall of man in the Garden of Eden, since prior to the very beginning, in His wisdom, God had a specific plan in mind. It wasn't a last-ditch effort. It was the perfect plan for how to redeem and set free mankind all across this planet, how to redeem this lost world from all of its brokenness and the control of evil. And this plan was going to be expressed in its first part through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he did not know how everything else was going to unfold. He did know he was in trouble. He knew he had lost his position and he had an opportunity to take over on earth. And he did that. But he had to have a sense of the fact that God was not going to be content to just let him run loose. That God was marshalling his forces to deal a final death blow to everything that Satan was doing. But he didn't know what that would look like. Now understand, Lucifer is an intelligent... We don't want to give him more credit than we have to, but, but you, you need to understand your enemy. He is a very intelligent and highly organized being and all of those under him are reflective of that. And they wanted to know, you know, they had to want to know how God was going to work out His plan to crush them. You know, I often wondered why it is that in the Old Testament, God spoke so many times about His plan to send Jesus. Over 300 times He referenced that in the Old Testament. But He always did it in this veiled Sense. This, it's like it was covered in a cloak of secrecy. He would make all these references to the Messiah, the promised one who was going to set things right. But the truth of the matter is, if you lived 2,000, 3,000 years ago, there is zero chance that you would have read that and gone, Oh, I know exactly how that's going to happen. You couldn't possibly piece those things together and dream up how Jesus was going to come. And I wondered for so long, why did God do it that way? Why didn't he just say, Hey, I've got good news for you. There's going to come a point in time, I'm going to send my son in the world. He's going to be a little helpless infant. He's going to live a sinless life. He's going to grow up and show you what God looks like with skin on him. He's going to bring the, the power of, of the kingdom of light, the very power of God to bear in the world. And ultimately, he's going to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And then I'm going to raise him from the dead to demonstrate that I accepted that sacrifice. He's going to return to heaven. And then there's going to be a next phase of that plan. And here's how it's going to happen. And he didn't do anything close to that he gave us all of these just veiled references to what was coming why do you think he did that i can tell you exactly why i think he did because there was an enemy who could not know this plan it would have been basically impossible to carry out the plan if satan had known in advance you couldn't send jesus into the world as an infant i mean as it was just from the, the prophecies that were there. Satan knows all these prophecies. He, he was on alert when part of the Godhead showed up on earth. Now, we don't know if he recognized exactly who had arrived in the form of the infant of, of Bethlehem. But he knew something was up to the, to the extent that he was willing to have all of the babies in that whole region murdered in an attempt to snuff out this life. Tried repeatedly to kill Jesus when he was growing up. 
There's no way that, that he really could have fully understood what was happening as Jesus was approaching the cross and when he went to the cross. Don't you know for Lucifer and all of his followers, there was a sense of confusion that, that this Jesus who had them so worried that he had tried to reason with, he had tried to get off course, he had tried to kill. And when finally he, the whole thing of the cross comes out, there probably was some sense of, well, good. We've beaten him. We've killed him. So we're done with that. And it had to be a terrible sense of, uh-oh, when on the third day he came back from the dead. Like, wow, what's he going to do now? I mean, this has got to be bad. He's probably now going to begin to just step out and do all the stuff that we had feared that he might do. And he did the most surprising thing of all. Six weeks later, he, he left earth and went to heaven and hadn't been back since. Don't you know that initially that was as perplexing a thing as the enemy could have possibly seen? Like, what was that about? I mean, Jesus, the one we fear the most. If you're, I'm, t- I'm talking as if this is Satan talking. Jesus showed up on earth. This was terrifying. This is going to be terrible news for us. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't seem like he did that much. He didn't travel outside of a little bitty region. He didn't write anything down for anybody to hold on to. He never led an army. He never led an uprising. He got killed. And granted, he did the amazing. He, he came back from the dead, but six weeks later he left, took off into heaven. We all saw it happen, and he hasn't come back. When he went back into heaven, this great movement that he came to usher in involved such a tiny group of people that they fit in an upper room. About 120 of them. Doesn't seem like that was real world-changing stuff at that point, does it? You know what Paul says about all that? Didn't make any sense to the enemy because it was God's secret plan. It was God's great mystery that began to be revealed in the person and work of Jesus. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he kicked open the door between heaven and earth. And suddenly, Lucifer was not safe anymore. He dealt the initial blow to the kingdom of darkness that's going to prove to be fatal, but at the time, probably didn't seem like that big of a deal. Paul says in the middle of verse in Ephesians 3.10, It is now through the church that God is revealing to all those powers and principalities in the heavenlies. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about Lucifer and all of his demons who have not known what in the world God's plan was. It is now through the church that God's great mysterious plan is being revealed. What is that plan? That plan is that the kingdom of God would overtake this world, that injustice would be crushed, that love, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration would become the norm for humanity, and that evil and oppression would be pushed out through the church. Don't you tell me that the church is irrelevant. Don't you tell me that the church is on its way out. The church is larger and stronger globally than it's ever been at any point in human history. And she's just gaining momentum. The church is the bride of Jesus. The church is God's way of saying to the enemy, I'm taking over. I'm reclaiming what is mine. He does it not just through Random individuals out there in the world, he does it through his bride, the church, which expresses itself in all of these little pockets of people who get together in local congregations around the globe. The church is a big deal. Now, unfortunately, in America and in the the West, in a capitalistic culture, which has been Christian for such a very long time, we get these warped ideas of what the church is. And we say little things that that represent how warped our view of the church is. Like, you know, well, I'm going to go to church. You don't go to church. I mean, do you think this building is the church? I hope not, because it's not much. (laughs) You don't go to church. You are the church. We are the church. You don't go, you know, when somebody says, you're going to go to church this week, smile back at them and say, nope. I am the church, but the church is going to get together this week. Because we're the church. It's not a building. 
It's a community of people who represent Christ, who literally are the body of Christ. It is the church that expresses the love and power of God in the world. You know, one of the other things that really shows how twisted our thinking becomes about the church is when people are looking for a church to connect with. You think, well, that's a good thing for people to be looking for a church. But listen to how we talk about that. I'm just looking for the church that meets the needs of me and my family. Do what? I'm just looking for the church that's just best going to meet our needs and that's got all the ministries that we're looking for. We talk about church in America as if we were a Christian retailer. We're God's gap. We're here to supply you with more stuff on our shelves than anybody else. So you'll come and shop with us next week. On Sundays, listen to people how talk about people will talk about church as they're coming and going. It's as if we've come to a restaurant. Oh, I hope Jeff and the praise team have some good appetizers for us this morning. I hope you guys are going to sing some of my favorite songs. That might just stir up my spiritual taste buds to have a good experience in worship. And I hope, I mean, everybody knows the, the sermon's the main event. I hope the preacher doesn't put a dud out there. I hope he cooks something good up. Something we're all going to like and go home and feel like our spiritual bellies have all been filled. That is not God's design for the church. If that's the way you think about church, erase that junk. That is not what the church is for. Why does the church get together? It's a fair question. It's not so that we can walk away and say, "Mm -mm, Boy, Mark laid one on this week. That was spiritual steak. That is not why we get together. We don't get together so we have our spiritual... Taste buds twanged because Jeff picked the right songs for this week. We get together so that collectively we can declare our love for God and just the greatness of God. We gather for worship. Now, worship is not about us. It is about God. And something unique happens when the church assembles. God is just uniquely present when we get together. If that weren't true, then y'all just put in your, your earphones and listen to your worship music on your iPod all day long and just, woohoo, praise Jesus, it's just all good. And that's all you'd need. That is not all you need. That may be heartwarming and it's good stuff and I'm glad you do that. Keep on doing it. But it is not the same as what happens when the body is assembled and God is just uniquely present when we get together and we worship. And that is not about how well I preach, and it's not about Jeff's song selection for the week. It is about the reality of there being a God who is present in a different way when we get together and we focus completely on Him. The church assembles to honor and declare His greatness. The church assembles to be encouraged. And the church assembles to make a difference in the world. And none of those things are about giving me my strokes and giving you your strokes and hoping that it just met our needs. We've got to just blow up that mentality of, of this being some kind of consumer environment where we're here to, to peddle something. It's not God's gap and it's not spiritual Walmart. You know, if anything, church is a place for us to honor God and a place to come to learn to die. To learn to die to self so that Jesus can live in us. And that ain't sexy. And it doesn't sell worth a flip on TV. That's why usually a lot of the stuff you get on TV isn't going to help you much in that process. The writer of Hebrews understood how much we need this when he said, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We need spurring on, don't we? You keep me away from the church long enough and I'll get so focused on me and my interests and my needs. I need y'all to spur me on toward love and good deeds. Those don't come natural for me. Selfishness and laziness come a lot more natural than love and good deeds. I need you to spur me on. You need me. And he goes on to say in the next verse, verse 25, And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. That's what we gather to do. Now, in the church, it matters what we do. And there are some things that mark a healthy church or that expose the church as not being healthy. And I want to, I'm going to do this kind of quickly, but I want to point out to you four marks of a strong, biblical, healthy church, a New Testament church. Now, if you belong here, if you're a part of most of who's here, you belong to the Freedom Family. I want you to listen to these four things and think in terms of how well are we doing this and how can we do it better. 
And if you're in a mode of, of looking for a church home, some of you watching online are thinking about this. Some of you are guests in the room. You're thinking in an evaluative mode. Is this a church for me? Don't think in terms of, are you going to meet all of my needs? Think in terms of these four things. It's a template to say, hey, this is what I'm looking for in a healthy church. The first one is this. The Word of God is preached, taught, and honored. Paul had Timothy as one of his understudies. Timothy really was his protege. and Paul was training him to be an effective pastor. I want you to hear a couple of the excerpts from some of the letters that he wrote him in the New Testament. He says, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. And he said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. You get a sense that Paul is driving home. Timothy, when the family is together, you bring the word. I don't care what the season is like. I don't care if, if people are favorable and clapping for it or not. You bring the truth to bear every time you get together. Read the Word. Preach the Word. Teach the Word. Use it to correct. Use it to rebuke. Use it to train and instruct. The Word of God is our primary standard. And I just want you to be real clear. At Freedom Church, it is the final authority for us. You and I can be so passionate about what we feel like the Spirit of God has told us. And yes, the Spirit of God speaks directly to our hearts. But we can have passionately differing opinions about what we think God has told us personally. And we can feel strongly about it and we can be strongly wrong. The Word of God is always right. And we will always uphold it as our final standard. I, I speak for the leadership of the church when I say this. We believe the Word of God. We believe the written Word of God. We believe it from the start. We're in Genesis 1. 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. All the way to the maps in the back. And everything in between. I'm kidding about the maps, but we believe the whole thing. It is the Word of God. We are not a church that says, well, you know, now that we've progressed so much in our thinking and we understand things better, we don't necessarily believe this and we have a better understanding of that, so we sort of set these passages aside. Mm -mm. If it's politically incorrect, if it seems out of step with our culture, hate it for you. We believe and honor and follow the Word of God. Now, I don't say this to criticize anybody else. It takes all kinds of flavors. That's why Baskin-Robbins has got 31 of them. It takes lots of flavors for the world. But I will say for us, when we get together for worship once a week, we're going to spend some time in the Word of God. I am not going to give you a little spiritual Captain Crunch and send you home 15 minutes later. I don't apologize for that. I know a lot of people just say, that's, just, that's too long for me, that's too much for me. The goal is not to stay here and you know, preach the word for two hours. But it, the average Christian that does go to church today is going to go one time a week. And if you're going to come one time a week, I'm not going to give you a 15-minute devotional. You, you get an outline every week, and it's pretty packed on front and back. And you know what it's packed with? It's going to be packed with Scripture. Because whether you enjoy the style or not... You can count on this. We are going to give you the Word of God. We're going to give you truth to wrestle with, and that will never change. So bank on that. Second thing that marks the church is that the Christian ordinances or sacraments are experienced. Now, if you come from a Catholic background or an Anglican background, you talk in terms of sacraments. Pretty much all of the Protestants other than Anglicans uh, speak of the same thing as ordinances. There's nothing freaky about these. Um, now, Catholics think in terms of seven sacraments because other than the two that all churches embrace, they, they refer to other things that we do as sacraments, things like marriage and, and extreme unction, prayer and laying on of hands, things like that. But all churches, I'm not aware of any Christian church in the world that does not embrace the two fundamental ordinances or sacraments. Now, you may say, well, what is an ordinance? What is a sacrament? It, it is simply an outward mark of the presence of God. It is an outward expression of something that uniquely invokes a spiritual experience due to the unique presence of God in that thing. Now, the two ordinances that every church I'm aware of on earth that's a Christian church embraces are baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we say the Lord's Supper, uh, some refer to it as Holy Eucharist and some as, as Holy Communion and others that the Lord's Supper doesn't matter what you call it. They're all the same thing. 
It is that thing that Jesus instituted on the night that he was betrayed when he shared that final Passover meal and he took the bread and he broke it and he shared the cup. and He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. We believe, and the church has historically believed, and it's why it's universally practiced, that something unique happens when we follow in this wonderful tradition that's not just a tradition. That this is an outward expression of a profound inward spiritual reality that marks the presence of God. Now, it's easy to say, well, the Bible says everywhere, every time two or three get together in His name that He's there. He is. He is. We could also say you're a believer, so God is with you everywhere you go. He is. But you also know that there are times... Where God is with you in a much more profound way that you can't explain or measure, but you're just like, wow, God was there. There are times when you get together for worship and you're like, I'm sure God was there and it was, it was fine, it was good. And then there are other times that you just walk away and go, wow. It wasn't the music, it wasn't the preaching, it was just, it was just God. He was just there. How do you explain that? I mean, how do you define that? But it's real, isn't it? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You just, yeah, everybody does. There's those times, man, God is just there. That's what I'm talking about in the ordinances. That when the church assembles as one body, and we share in this, this special thing where Christ is present as we come to the table yeah, he, he's always there when we get together, but he is uniquely there. He is powerfully there. It's why when we come to the table, stuff happens. People get healed at table time. People get set free from demonic oppression at table time when we come to the table. It just is an outward marker of a powerful reality that happens. Can something significant happen when you just share in communion by yourself at home? I suppose you can bank on something special happening when the body assembles and we share in this thing that's a gift that Jesus gave us. The same is true of baptism. Jesus, when he was about to return to heaven, he looked at his followers, said, All authority on heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, as you go, make disciples and you baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I just want to tell you, I am distressed at the response of American Christians to the concept of baptism today. And if I'm stepping on your toes, I love you, I'm going to step hard. Something is wrong when we look at a teaching as fundamental as baptism and just go, I love Jesus and I'm saved, but I just don't know that I'm ready to do that yet. You're not a follower of Christ if you're not baptized. Now, I know that offends some people. That sounds judgmental. You can call yourself whatever you want to, but if you're not doing what Jesus told you to do, don't say you're following Jesus. You're doing what you want to do. The first thing that Jesus says for a follower of His to do is to be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that getting dunked in the water is what gets you into heaven. It doesn't. But don't profess to be a follower of Jesus if you're not willing to follow Jesus. The first thing that Jesus says for you to do is this thing that we, we turn it into all kinds of other things. We want to splash or sprinkle or spray or, you know, whatever. We want to do it to infants. It is for a follower of Jesus. Once you have decided to trust, receive and follow him to publicly declare that you are his and will follow him for the rest of your life. First century Christians did not view this as a symbolic act. That just had no meaning. No, to be baptized was an, a declaration, that action. You could be baptized into anybody's name. And by the way, you were always baptized into a name because baptism wasn't just a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism was a declaration. I have decided to commit my life to following someone. So I'm going to be baptized into a name. I could be baptized into John Beck's name. And in the first century, everybody would have known that meant Mark is going to be John's servant for the rest of his life. It was a big deal. And it's why when Jesus said, be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, people got it. It's like, wow, that means you're committing for the rest of your life. You're going to serve the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no other God like Him. They got it. The word baptizo in the Greek meant to be immersed and drawn back out. It's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. 
And now we've come to a, a time in the church today where people want to raise their hand, pray a little prayer, check the box, and say, I've got my ticket punch to go to heaven. But I don't know that I want to go in front of anybody. I don't want to get my hair wet. I don't want to... Whatever. It's like, we better get over ourselves. This is a big deal. And there is a tremendous spiritual reality that goes with this. I've had so many people share similar stories, but one that just to me sums up baptism. When I was pastoring in the last church that I served, Coates, and, um, you know, we would always emphasize, if you're going to actually join the covenant family, you must have been baptized by somebody. And if not, we'll be happy to baptize you. But, but baptism is a part of it. Like, you can't be a part of the covenant family if you haven't trusted Christ. We're not trying to create rules and, and obstacles. It's just we're not going to play a game and act like you belong if you haven't actually done the things to belong. And so we laid that out there. And I, I can't tell you how many people would get aggravated at me. You're telling me I have to have been baptized or get baptized to join this church. Yes. I'm kind of blown away by how many people get ticked about that. Well, this was an older gentleman, and he didn't like it at all. He'd been in church for umpteen years, and he'd never been baptized, and he's the same dude. You're telling me, I want to join this church, but you're telling me I can't unless I get baptized. I'm telling you, I'd love for you to join this church. I don't say you have to be baptized. Jesus does. And I say what Jesus says. So, yes to Jesus. You've got to be baptized. He didn't like it, but he wanted to join the church. Praise God for that. So he agreed to be baptized. We met at the city pool, and we did baptism for him and some other people. He went through the deal, and, and he went in dragging his feet the whole way. He came to me, I don't know, a couple of weeks or a month later, and he said, I just got to tell you something. He said, when you told me I had to be baptized, boy, I didn't like it. It's like, no kidding. And he said, I didn't want to do it. And the only reason I did it is because you told me I had to, and I didn't like it. But I did it anyway. I didn't have a good attitude when I did it. He said, I went in those waters with you and did that. I wasn't expecting it. I had a bad attitude. And God did something to me right there in my baptism. I wasn't looking for it. Didn't expect it. And I've been changed ever since. He said, I can't even explain it. God just took hold of my heart. He did something in my life when I got baptized. And I didn't even have a good attitude about it. That is a perfect example of the church following Christ, being obedient. And this outward marker that may seem silly to us, what does getting wet and dunked in front of a bunch of people mean? It means something profound. As we follow Christ and He's uniquely present with us, He does something in us that we can't explain or define. But it's real, it's profound, and it's life-changing. Now I want you to do me a favor right now. Everybody pull out one of these. Wave it at me to show, show me that I want it in everybody's hand. If it doesn't have your name on the front of it, please right now write your name on the front of it. I know half of us don't ever fill these things out on a Sunday. Write your name on the front. Because there are two or three different specific things you're going to have an opportunity to do. This may seem silly. I'm not trying to get notches in my belt. I want us to be faithful followers of Jesus. If you have not been baptized, and today, yes, the Spirit of God has been speaking, and you realize, I missed this. I need to do something about it. Turn to the back of the card, the third box, check the box, and we'll get her done. Okay? You want practical application? There's practical application. Your name and phone number on the front, a check on the box on the back. You will be getting a call from me. We will line it up. We'll be having baptism. All right, enough said about that. Third mark of a healthy church. All healthy churches exercise discipline. Boy, this isn't fun or sexy, is it? The scary thing is that most churches that I'm aware of in America don't exercise discipline. And a large percentage of the Christians that I've dealt with would resist it if they had discipline used toward them. Now, a lot of times I think we misunderstand what that term means. It's like, oh, does this mean this is a legalistic church and I'm going to get chewed out every time I mess it? No, that's not what we mean by discipline. Every one of us need the discipline of the church because of the truth, including me, definitely including me, because we all have blind spots. Hey, the truth of the matter is, there's sin that I enjoy 
And I am as good as anybody you've ever known at rational. Whatever I like. You know, I, I can just make up good reasons why I've got a bad attitude or why I don't like somebody or why I could gossip or whatever it is that's my pet sin. Oh, I can rationalize it away. And I need some people in my life who will speak truth and exercise loving Christian discipline to call me to account. God's put some faithful guys in my life. He's put some faithful ministers in my life who will be real straight up and honest with me within the church. We need the discipline of the church. Paul describes it well in Galatians 6 when he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. That's a picture of most discipline within the church. It's one person loving another person enough to gently and lovingly go to them and talk to them about something that they're burdened about, that they see that's destructive, and helping them to get back on track. That's discipline. He says, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? The law of Christ is that you love one another as you love yourself. Now, Jesus spelled out with some more definition what discipline looks like as it has to unfold in a church. When he says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. It's not about public shame. It's not about beating each other up. And he says, if the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. This is just Jesus being very practical. You know, if Jeff comes to me and points something out in my life that's a concern that needs to be addressed, you know, I might blow Jeff off and say, oh, you know, Jeff, he's just a goofy guy. Well, you know, why should I listen to him? But if Jeff brings back Paul and Lee and the three of them say, man, we all love you. We are not trying to embarrass you. But we've talked about it and we've prayed about it. And all three of us feel very strongly that this is something you need to give attention to in your life. That is so much weightier for me. It, I mean, I might could blow one of you off. It'd be really hard for me to just think you all three are crazy. So what Jesus is giving us is that model. And he says, you know, so that everything you say can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. But if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. And that can be in the form of approaching the leadership of the church to, to be involved in that process. And then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as you would a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Now, I used to read that and think, ooh, what a horrible conclusion to that. If they don't listen to the counsel of the church, get out. We're never talking to you again. We're going to, you know, do this as we walk by you on the street because you're a pagan or a tax collector. Came to realize how misguided that thought was. I'll share with you a story that that, uh, isn't a real happy story, but just I've been involved in, goodness, more situations than I could count that involve church discipline. And I've seen so many redemptive outcomes in those and over just a variety of different issues. But um, I think this story helps to drive home the importance of discipline. And of our willingness to receive discipline, to be in a church that exercises it, and to be a people who will receive it. Um, a number of years ago, there was a family who, who was heavily involved in our church. They were heavily involved in ministry leadership with us, had been for years. I, I personally was really close to them. And they, in what I think probably started out as an attempt to do something good, made a very unwise decision. One of their children had gotten to be a senior in high school. I don't remember if she had just graduated or was within the last two or three months of within graduating, but it was right around her graduation time. And she had, as teenagers do, had just fallen in love with a man of her dreams. And they had gotten really attached. And I don't remember all of the details, but he didn't have a happy home situation. It wasn't good between him and his parents. And so this family that I was close to decided that they would just take him into their home and just let him live out the last part of his high school experience and and sometime beyond that, living with them, thinking that they would rescue him from that. And so they did that without consulting anybody, which, by the way, is part of the safeguard of the church. When you're doing something that's really kind of questionable within the context of family, there are people that you can trust and ask about that. They didn't they didn't ask for guidance. They just took that step. I became aware of it sometime later on. And so I went to the to the husband and wife, the mom and dad in that situation, and said, guys, I've just got to tell you, this is unwise and needs to be corrected. You know, there's not an extra bedroom in your house. Your daughter is so in love with this guy, and he is with her. 
it doesn't look good and it cannot be a healthy arrangement that's, that protects them and their reputations for y'all to just have them here together. And they would not receive... It, it, honestly, there's nothing heavy-handed in it. I, I still love them to this day. Love them in that. And they wouldn't receive that. They just, they just kind of listened and just blew it off. Well... At the time, they, they just were like, thanks for that. But time demonstrated that they blew off the counsel that they had been given. God is very good at exposing our mistakes and our sins. I mean, we know that's a fact. He's real good at doing that in my life. And the Lord revealed to me in some very specific ways that there definitely was something unhealthy going on here. More than, than met the eye. Um, as a next step, I brought in the young man and young woman and sat them down and explained to them, you know, you both are professing followers of Christ that we love dearly. And you guys need to set this right. You don't need to be living under the same roof, unmarried. Well, at this point, there were, there's no bones made about it. They weren't just living in the same house. They were sharing the same bedroom in mom and dad's house. And, you know, at that point, you, as believers, we cannot plug our ears and cover our eyes and go, well, that's their business. We owe it to each other to speak honestly to that. So I sat down with them and I talked to them as young adults. This is not what followers of Christ do. This is what God's Word says about this. And you guys have got to make this right. Well, it just made... He actually was convicted. And if she had responded well, he might have been willing to make that right. But she got furious and jumped up and stormed out and got in the car and wheeled her tires and took off out of the parking lot. Didn't want anything else to do with me. Well, it was during that time that the Lord just, just brought into the picture the realization there is more in play here than just a hormonal teenage boy and teenage girl. That there is something much bigger and more wicked going on. And I had to go back to the Father and sit down with Him and say, I hate to tell you this, but I really do believe that your wife has become involved in this situation in an unholy way. And you have got to immediately be proactive to make this right. Or your, your family, your whole family is at risk. You're at risk of losing everything here. He got furious. He jumped up, threw the chair aside. He wanted to fight. I mean, he wanted to punch my lights out. He's a big old boy, too. I'm like, man, I didn't come here to fight you. I came here because I love you and I do not want to see you lose your family. Something is so wrong here, and you have to address it. You know, I was crazy. He didn't want anything to do with that, and he left. And so I knew what I had to do next. I love this family. It would have been so easy to just go, I tried. I had to call in the wife and sit her down to confront that. And I gave her the opportunity to just, you know, do you want to come clean about what really is going on here? Because God is putting this in the light. And she did. She just fessed up. That at first, it was under the guise of, I'm just going to let them be together. And then it became that she was infatuated with him. And then she became sexually involved with the boyfriend of her daughter. And as much as we go, oh, I can't believe that that's just so sick. That is just a good reminder of what all of us are capable of. Sin will take you further and keep you longer than you ever planned when you start playing around with it, when you start compromising. And the result of all this, when that came to light, was that a marriage was destroyed. Relationships between parents and kids were damaged long term for years. All kinds of stuff just blown up by this. And, and you know what it comes back to? Is an unwillingness to submit to the counsel and discipline that God provides within His family that every single one of us need. Now thankfully... Because we, we exercised what, what Jesus said here when he said, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Let me ask you this. How is a Christian supposed to act towards a pagan or a tax collector? The modern equivalent of that. Whoever the, the dirtiest sinner out there is. Well, we all know the answer to that. We're supposed to love them and reach out to them. Not install them as leaders in the church. But we're supposed to love them, accept them, be friends to them. And we, we lived that out. And God allowed for personal relationships and even church relationship to be restored to continue to minister in that situation to the individuals involved. We all need discipline within the church. And we're a church that's committed to practicing that without being legalistic. And then the fourth and final piece I'll mention and will be done is 
that believers share together in an experience of intimate community. It's the thing that's so attractive about the church in a world that's so um, disconnected and, and so much social media kind of friends. Paul said in Romans 12:5, so in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. And I'm just going to I'm going to share with you uh, just a final glimpse of what this looks like. In the first century when the church was first formed in Acts 2, it says this all the members devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. And they sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple. Initially, they did this each day. And then they would meet in the homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It's this wonderful picture that back then was on a daily basis over time they realized we're going to have still work jobs Jesus isn't coming back next week and, and they began to practice this on a weekly basis that they would gather in the, the courtyards of the temple the temple itself was too small to gather the people in and you didn't go in the temple they'd gather outdoors and the apostles would teach in large groups that's when they'd get to meet each, each day or each week they'd hear the teaching of the apostles and then they would go into homes all over the city and they would wrestle over the truths that they had heard from the apostles. They wouldn't get more teaching. They would discuss that and, and work on, how do we apply this? And they'd eat together. And they'd pray together. And they'd share the Lord's Supper together. And they would meet each other's needs together. This is the model for how we've designed the church. Super simple. We gather on Sunday and this is the, the setting the table. This is where we do the primary teaching time. And then we gather on multiple nights of the week in multiple different homes... And we do the four things that are spelled out in Acts 2.42. We fellowship together. We eat together. From time to time we share the Lord's Supper together. We wrestle with applying the teaching that we've heard on Sunday. And we spend time just sharing and praying over each other. It's a 2,000 year old model and it still works today. And it's important for you to realize when we talk in terms of belonging in the family. It's a great step that you would come on Sunday morning. But this isn't belonging. The truth of the matter is, there are a number of you who are here today that you don't know five people in this room that you didn't come with. They have no idea what's going on in your life. You have no idea what's going on in the lives of others. You attend, but you don't belong. And for us, there are a couple of different things that define belonging. To actually say, I sign on the line to be a covenant member where I agree to do ten different things and be held accountable for these things and to, to really live up to this. If you've never actually taken the step of formally belonging to the church, I'd love for you to come this afternoon at 4.30. It's a one-time deal. You just come at 4.30. We're done by 6. But we really share together in who are we? What do we believe? Where are we headed? How can you be a part of that? And we go over the covenant. What is it we promise to do within the covenant family? The other piece that is to me the most significant part of belonging is to get connected in a small group we harp on it all the time because it's so critical sunday morning is important and it's nice it's not nearly as important as what happens in small group because in small group people get to know you and you get to know them and together you pray and wrestle with the truth and you get involved in each other's lives helping each other move forward meeting needs the stuff we just read about happens in our small groups. And I don't want you to miss out on that. I am not into promoting a program. But I am all about following the example that we find in Scripture. And this is a very clear pattern in the, in the Word. If you're not in a small group, I realize some of you may be in a season of life that work or something prevents you. I get that. There's no, I'm not trying to beat you up spiritually over that. But if your schedule would allow you to do that, I strongly encourage you. If you've never tried it, let this be the time to try it. We're kicking off our small groups for the new year this week. You see the little white card in the, the pouch of the seat back in front of me? Not the cream-colored one you just did, but the other one, the white one. If you have not yet filled out one of those cards, take a moment to fill that out, and we will get you in a group. 
Now, if you have never gone through our connection class, the, the membership class, that's our process for getting people initially in a small group. So if you have never done that, I want you to take the cream-colored card. If you've never done connection and you could come today, will you just write the word connection at the top of your card so we kind of have an idea of who's coming tonight? And I will meet you, Lee and I will meet you in here at 4.30 today, and we're going to get you connected to a small group. If you've already done the connection class, many of you have already done that, but you're just not in a group yet, fill out that white card, drop it in the offering basket in just a minute, and we'll get you connected to a group this week. We've got a variety of nights and options. There will be one that will fit you. We want you to have a place where you connect. And ultimately, when we do these things, when we honor the Word of God, when we experience Christ in worship and through the ordinances, and, and when we're living accountable to each other, when we're doing all of this stuff, when we're really living in community, man, we have an opportunity to have a tremendous impact on the world. Individually, very little. Together, a great deal. I'm so glad to get to do this with you. I just want to see every single one of us really connected to be in a safer place. We can't grow to be who we're supposed to be without each other. We need each other, and that's what today's about. Would you bow with me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we are so grateful that you didn't call us to just be only children, but that you've called us to be brothers and sisters who all live together and learn to do life together in your family. I pray that you'd help us to do that well at Freedom. I pray that this would be the best year we've ever known as a church family and in small group community. I pray, God, that you just continue to connect people to the body. We welcome your work in our lives. Grow us up. Teach us to be the sons and daughters that you'd have us to be and make of us a strong, healthy family. Please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.